appreciate you very much this morning, Brother Tim's message on God's sovereignty. Certainly, that's an extremely important subject in the Word of God. Some people don't appreciate that subject. But I would certainly hate to think that I would stand before you this morning and not preach a God that is sovereign. To be able to do that, you have to preach a God who's omnipotent. If he's not omnipotent, he can't be sovereign. If he's sovereign, he has to be omnipotent. They go together. And I'm thankful that God's a God who works his will among the army of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or saith unto him, What doest thou? I'd like to go to Genesis chapter 49 this morning. Last week we spoke to you concerning the life of Joseph and primarily some things concerning his father Jacob from Genesis chapter 48. I want to continue on with that this morning in Genesis chapter 49. When we concluded last Sunday in Genesis 48, we find where Jacob had a message to Joseph as he blessed Joseph's two sons. And blessing Joseph's two sons, he also blessed Joseph. And he said to Joseph, Behold, I die. He says, But God shall be with you. See, the day will come when, well, the day's always been, when men get to a point where they realize they're about to leave this world and they can no longer help their loved ones. They can no longer be of assistance to their loved ones or anybody else. And so all we can say is like Jacob, behold, I die. But we can also say, but God shall be with you. It reminds me of the first chapter of Joshua in the first verse. We find at this point that Moses has died and God has buried him. And no man knows where his sepulchre is even unto today. And Joshua starts out by saying that Moses was dead. And many years ago, I took my pen and I read that and I wrote right above it, but God's alive. Don't ever forget, my friends, death is going to come to all. But God's alive and God shall not leave you nor forsake you. God shall be with you. Now, in chapter 47, we read where it says that Israel, that is Jacob, must die. In the last part of 48, Jacob says, behold, I die. But he's not dead yet. And we find that Jacob had a number of things to do before he left this world, and he was determined to do it by God's grace. It reminds me in the latter days of David, when God revealed to David that he would not be able to build the temple because he was a man of war. He was going to allow his son Solomon to build the temple. And God gave Solomon seven years of peace and rest from all of his enemies so he could build the temple. But David didn't go off and pout. In David's last days, he counseled his son Solomon. And he organized an effort to gather the materials that was going to go into the tabernacle. It was in David's heart to build it, but God, it wasn't God's will for David to build it. It was God's will for his son Solomon to build it. So David did the next best thing. He did the very best he could to assist, to help his son Solomon in the building of the temple. When the apostle Paul knew that he only had a short time left in this world, what did he do? Did he go off into the sunset and just uh, sit down under a tree and wait till his last day would come? No. He writes to Timothy. In the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, he says, The time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. Henceforth there is a crown of righteousness laid up for me, and not for me only, for all those that love his appearing. Now, Notice that. And boy, it'd be tempting to run off with that for a while, but I won't. To love's his appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord? 
Do you love reading about his first appearance when he came 2,000 years ago? Do you love to read about how he's appearing right now in the presence of God for us? Do you love the prospect of his second coming, his second appearing? If you do, there's a crown of righteousness that awaits for you. Not a crown of gold, a crown of silver, or a crown with jewels in it, but it's a crown of righteousness, the imputed righteousness that is given to every elect child of grace, every child of God, to every member of God's family. So what did he tell Timothy? He says, Timothy, when you come, it's, it's wintertime. He says, bring my coat. It's going to be cold. I, I need a coat. But he says, bring the parchments and bring the books. Paul was going to spend his last hours reading and studying the books. He was going to spend his last hours writing. He didn't just decide, well, I'll do nothing. I don't have much time left. I've pretty much done everything I need to do. No, he felt like he needed to continue until he drew his last breath. Now, I hope that's my desire. I hope that's what's inside of me. Until I leave this world, I want to do the very best I can to be beneficial and profitable and help somebody. And this is Jacob. Jacob's got some things to do. In chapter 48, he blessed the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so Joseph was blessed. He now, in chapter 49, gathers all his sons together, all 12 of them. And notice how it's expressed in Genesis 49.1. And Jacob called on his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you which shall befall you in the last days. Now, when you read the expression last days, sometimes the, last, the word last days has reference in this case to Jacob and his posterity and their offspring all the way up to the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's pronouncing ahead of time some his, history that has not yet obviously taken place. Now, he could not do that without divine revelation. Jacob didn't know the future. Only God knows the future. Sometimes people say, well, we don't know the future, but we know who holds the future. And that's a true statement, except for the fact there are some things about the future that you do know. You know in the future the Lord's coming again. You know in the future there's going to be a resurrection. You know in the future there's going to be a last day when all time, time's end, and so you do know that. Now, a lot of things are going to happen between now and then. I do not know, and therefore I do trust in a God who holds the future in his hands, you see. So the, work, the expression last days has different meanings. We look in the book of uh, 2 Timothy 3.1, a, a verse a lot of people like to refer to. And Paul tells Timothy, in the last days, perilous times shall come. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, the apostle Peter said, in the last days, scoffers shall come. The last days oftentimes has reference to the last dispensation of time that began with the Lord Jesus Christ's first coming, will end with the Lord Jesus Christ's second coming. And sometimes the expression last days has reference to the last days of the last days. The last days of this dispensation. So the last days here has reference to some history that's going to take place concerning the twelve sons of Jacob. Now Jacob says in verse 2, Gather yourselves together and hear, ye sons of Jacob, and hearken unto Israel your father. He's basically saying this, I'm your father, listen to me and pay attention. <laughs> uh, you're my sons, I'm your father. I got a few last words to say to you. They're important. It's important for you to pay attention to what I'm going to say. So the Lord's going to, I mean, Jacob is going to say some things to all 12 sons, things he could not possibly know except the Lord had given him an understanding, a divine revelation of some future concerning his sons.
His first three sons, their future has been determined by their past conduct. He's going to make some reference to their past conduct, which is going to have an effect, an impact on their future days. That's true in the case of all of us here today. There's things we may have said and things we may have done in the past that has had, a, has had an impact in our future. In this case here, it's going to cost Reuben, Simeon, and Levi some blessings they could have had had they not had some things in their past that God was very displeased with. The first man, Reuben, we find Jacob starts off by saying, Reuben, you're unstable as water. How stable is water? It's not stable at all, is it? He said, that, that's what your life is. Just notice something what he says here. Thou art my firstborn, my might, the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity, and the excellency of power. That all sounds good. The firstborn would receive a double portion. The firstborn would have special privileges, and the firstborn had a lot of responsibility and accountability. And Reuben should have been strong, but Reuben wasn't strong. Reuben was unstable as water. Jacob's going to refer to something Reuben did that's recorded back in Genesis chapter 35, it's just only a one-verse statement. But you see, Leah had a handmaid that she gave unto J uh, Jacob, in which Jacob went unto and had two sons. You're going to find where Reuben had an immoral relationship with her handmaid. Because of that, he lost the privileges and blessings of the firstborn. His past conduct was going to determine some things he's going to lose in the future. Now, here's how... how uh, Jacob referred to, he says, Unstable as water, thou shalt not excel, because thou wentest up to thy father's bed, thou defilest it, thou it, he went up to my couch. Go back and read Genesis chapter 35, and you'll, verse 22, and you'll understand what he's talking about. Then he says, Simeon and Levi are brothering, instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. Now you go back to Genesis 34, and you'll understand what Jacob is talking about. To understand what Scripture is talking about, oftentimes you have to go to other places of the Scripture. That's why you just can't pick the Bible up and read something and let your imagination take over and uh, try to determine what it's talking about. You determine what something's talking about in the Word of God by other Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Somebody picks up the book of Revelation, never read the other 65 books of the Bible, so they're going to start reading the Bible. They pick book number 66, the last book, the book of Revelation, filled with symbolic language, and they think they can read that book and understand it. Impossibility. You understand the 66 book based upon what the first 65 teach. If you had not read the first 65, you're not going to understand book 66. Go back to chapter 34. And I made reference to this in one of the early messages on Joseph. You're going to find where they had a sister named Dinah. Dinah uh, was misused and abused uh, against her will by a man by the name of Shechem. You're going to find where Simeon and Levi are going to take revenge concerning that which would not have been, um, you know, unusual, obviously, and would not have been wrong, except they went ahead, not only did they slay Shechem and his father, but they slew a great many other men who were innocent in that, and God didn't like that, and Jacob didn't like that. And so as a result of that, here's what's going to happen. Simeon, in the future, is going to be absorbed into the tribe of Judah. And Levi, whom God will select for the priesthood, are going to, they will not have an inheritance in the land of Canaan. They're going to you know, minister in the tabernacle and in the temple. But they will also be separated from each other and live in 48 different cities. They're going to be scattered into 48 different cities, just like Jacob said. How did Jacob know that? From human understanding, he did not. 
But God impressed upon his mind what to pin down here and what to say to his different sons. And this is what he says to them. In other words, Reuben got sidetracked through lust. We find Simeon and Levi got sidetracked by an uncontrollable revenge. It cost them dearly down the road in the future. There's a principle taught throughout the Bible and many illustrations of it that we need to always keep in mind. In the book of Galatians, chapter 6, verses 7 8, the New Testament, the Apostle Paul said, God, uh, be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. That tells me if I don't understand that, if I don't keep that in mind, I can be deceived. Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, shall the flesh reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, and only a man been born of the Spirit can sow to the Spirit. If he sows to the Spirit, shall reap life everlasting, which means he shall reap benefits and blessings in a spiritual way. Everything we say, everything we do is like seed being sown. There comes a day that seed comes up. There will not be a crop failure in this regard. It will come up. Now, if I want corn to come up, I better, I better plant corn in the ground, right? Uh, there's an old saying, you know, about people sowing their wild oats. There's really no such thing as wild oats, by the way. But that's just a figure of expression. That somebody's sowing their wild oats or in their earlier days. They're living like the world, in other words, what it boils down to. And they think they can leave, live like the world and not cash some checks down the road in the future. We look in, uh, look in Proverbs 26, 27, and Solomon says, Whosoever diggeth a pit shall fall into it. And whosoever shall roll a stone, the stone shall roll back upon him. And in Proverbs 28 and 10, Solomon says, Whosoever shall call a righteous man to go astray in an evil way shall fall into his own pit. And you have that very clearly illustrated in the book of Esther. When you have, you know, Mordecai set up, uh, you know, as a target by Haman. Haman has some gallows built for Mordecai. But through God's providential blessings, it's going to be reversed. Mordecai is going to be delivered and Haman's going to die on the very gallows he had built for Haman. Once a man soweth, that shall he also reap. You see that coming to pass clearly with Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Now the fourth child is a man by the name of Judah. These were all sons born unto Leah, the wife that Jacob didn't want. <laughs> you know, he served seven years thinking he was going to get Rachel. But you see, Jacob was going to reap what he'd sown. See, Jacob was not the firstborn. The firstborn was his brother Esau. And Jacob deceived his father, lied to his father, and took the birthright that belonged unto Esau. Well, now he's not going to be able to get Rachel unless he serves seven more years. He's going to have to serve 14 years to get Rachel. He serves seven, thinking of getting Rachel, he wound up getting Leah because her father Laban said, in our part of the country, the younger doesn't marry before the older does. Jacob reaped what he sowed in that regard. So we come to this man by the name of Judah. His name means praise. Notice what it says about him. Judah, thou art he whom thy brethren shall praise. This tells me that Judah is going to be elevated above the other eleven. Thy brethren shall praise. Thy hand shall be in the neck of thine enemies. He's going to be victorious and successful. Thy father's children, as his brothers, shall bow down before thee. That was going to happen. Judah was going to remain intact throughout the ages until the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We notice in verse 9, Judah is a lion's whelp. The word whelp means a cub, a young lion, a cub. Judah is a lion's whelp. 
from the prey, my son, thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, as an old lion who shall rouse him up. Now, the lion is the king of the forest. The lion is the king of the beast of the field. Who's going to rouse an old lion up if he wants to sleep? In fact, I have found it's not wise to wake anybody up when they want to sleep, especially in the daytime when they're trying to take a nap. It's just not wise. But who's going to rouse up an old lion when he's uh, uh, resting at the end of the day? Nobody's going to do that. Now, from this is where you read in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5, where the apostle John looked and he saw uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as a lion of the tribe of Judah. That's where it's coming from right here. He saw him as a lion of the tribe of Judah, but he also looked and he saw a lamb as it had been slain, but that lamb stood. That lamb was in his resurrection uh, form. Now, we have an image of a lion and a lamb. Uh, you can't get any more opposite than that, can you? But you see, we find these two images here of a lion and a lamb, both pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. The lion displaying great strength and courage, and the lamb displaying great meekness and humility, and you find them both in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Apostle John uses an image of two animals here, a lion and a lamb, totally opposites, to bring forth characteristics in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is where John picks it up at. He's a lion of the tribe of Judah. Then in verse 10, it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The scepter is symbolic of power and authority and of identification. The scepter shall not depart where? From Judah. Nor a lawgiver from twenty feet until Shiloh come, and to him shall the gathering of the people be. Now this is the first time and the only time the word Shiloh is used in this sense. The word Shiloh here means the Messiah. You'll find the word shallow used many other times, over 30 times in scriptures, but all the rest of the times the word shallow is used has reference to a place. Reference to a place. This shallow who doesn't hear doesn't have reference to a place, has reference to a person. And the person is the Messiah. The person is the Lord Jesus Christ. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a logger from twenty his feet until shallow come. Shallow's coming, Messiah's coming. Unto him shall the gathering of the people be. I'd like to say a little bit more about this a little later on, but I'm going to say this. When he says in him shall the gathering of the people be, he's having reference now to his family, his children, that shall be gathered together unto him, both Jews and Gentiles. We go here to John 12, verses 31 and 32. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Now is the judgment of this world, now is the prince of this world cast down. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all nations unto me, all people unto me. That's all of his family shall be drawn unto him. Shiloh shall come, the Messiah shall come. He'll come where? From the, from the tribe of Judah. We find that talked to us over here in the book of Hebrews. As Christ is our great high priest, he did not come from the tribe of Levi, where all the priesthood came from, with the exception of Christ. Christ came from the tribe of Judah. Until Shiloh come, unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now notice in verses 11 and 12, Binding his foal unto the vine, his ass is cold unto the choice vine. This is something people normally would not do. They would lose their vine and most likely lose their animal. Binding his foal unto the vine, his ass is cold unto the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. You would normally not do that. You only wash your clothes in water. But he's showing here that wine will be in such great abundance grapes shall be in such great abundance that if they wanted to do something like this, they'd have the abundance to do so. Wine 
was a very precious product in that day, and it was always not in, in abundance. Sometimes it was on, the sh- it was on short. They would never wash anything in the blood of grapes or in wine, but things were going to be in such an abundance. If they wanted to, they could do that. His eyes should be red with wine, his teeth white with milk. In the scriptures, wine and milk always display the bountiful blessings of the Lord, especially in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in Isaiah 55, 1. He says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Now he's not talking about a natural thirst here. He's talking about a thirst for the soul. Just like in Psalms 42, 1, as the heart, H-A-R-T, as the heart thirsteth after the water brooks, so thirsteth my soul after thee, O God. Uh, heart is like our present day deer. As the heart thirsteth, what? After the water brooks. Can you see this animal? Can you see the deer in the forest? Can you see the deer in the woods? And he's thirsty, so he's looking for that brook. He's looking for that stream. As the heart thirsteth after the water brooks, so thirsty, what? My soul after thee, O God. So we found a thirst here. Ho, everyone that thirsteth. Everybody is not in this condition. Everybody is not thirsting, right? It wouldn't be phrased this way. Ho, everyone that thirsteth, that's who it is addressed to, come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. You can't put a price on the gospel. You can't put a price on the truth of the word of God. Solomon says in one place, buy the truth and sell it not. What could you get in the place of truth without you being the loser of it? I'm telling you, truth is vital. Truth is important. Christ said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. Well, wine is a stimulant. And the gospel should stimulate you. (laughs) If you don't feel any different when you leave than when you got here, something is either wrong with me or wrong with you. Maybe wrong with both of us. (laughs) The gospel is to stimulate us. The gospel is to encourage us. The gospel is to lift us up. The gospel is to build us up in the most holy faith. The gospel is to uh, uh, make us want to become more committed and more faithful in the house of God, in the service of God. And milk. Uh, it gives us nourishment, it gives us strength, enables uh, little babies to grow up to a certain age where then they can't just drink milk all their life. They can't reach a point where they need to have some meat and potatoes to go along with it. But it doesn't mean they still don't drink milk. I still drink milk from time to time. Look in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And desire the sincere what milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Milk is what God designed for a mother to feed her little baby. That baby might grow and be healthy and be strong. Come by wine and milk without money, without price. We need what those things symbolize in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth of God's word to help us along life's pathway. Now, he's going to speak about Zebulun and Issachar here. And I'm not going to say anything about them. There's nothing really out of the ordinary said about them. But you can take the time to read it. Run your Bible reference here. What he says about them is going to come to pass. Again, Jacob could not possibly have known that. There's no way that I could set my four children down and say, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the last days. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen from this day forward in your life. I'd be a fool to attempt something like that. No way possible I can know that. As I said in times past, if, uh, depending on how old you are here this morning, but if you're older, you can go back 10 years in your life. If you're eight years old, you can't go back 10 years, so you'll have to get a little older than that. Uh, so it depends on how old you are. But go back 10 years, go back 15 years, and go back 20 years and see where you were at that point in your life. Where did you work? Were you married? If so, 
uh, how many children did you have, et cetera, et cetera. But somebody 20 years ago told you right then what was going to happen the next 20 years of your life, you would not believe them. If somebody told me 20 years ago, I'd be living in Nashville, Tennessee, pastoring Bethel Church, I'd have thought you'd been out in the sun too long. You wouldn't believe if somebody mapped your life out. So that kind of makes me fearful uh, at this point what the next 20 or 30 or 40 years of my life is going to be. I might reach 40. We'll see. <laughs> Jacob knew this only by divine revelation. So we're going to come down to a man by the name of Joseph. Well, first of all, let's look in uh, verse 16. I do want to say this about Dan. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, an adder in the path that biteth his horse's heels. So that his rider shall fall backward. And then notice verse 18. You're going to see a word used for the first time in the Bible. This might surprise you. He says, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. This is the first time the word salvation is used in the Bible, right here. We're 49 chapters down from Genesis chapter 1. And it's the first time we read the word salvation. He said, I've waited for thy salvation, O Lord. It's like Jacob takes a pause right here. He's about halfway through. He takes a pause here. But it reminded me of one of the most famous people that came from the tribe of Dan. His name was Samson. Read about him in the book of Judges. And when I think about Samson's last days, I think about him as he sits there between two pillars. He's blind, but he gets a young man to take his hands and put those hands on those two pillars. And then he prays to God that God might avenge him the loss of his eyes, that God might avenge him upon the Philistines. Remember, Samson's the strongest man who's ever walked this earth from the standpoint of human strength. He could do Things is just beyond imagination. One time he caught 300 foxes, tied their tails together, and sent them out, set them on fire in the fields, cornfields of the Philistines. He took a jawbone of an ass and slew a thousand Philistines with it. He done superhuman things because God gave him the strength to be able to do those things. But Samson was always living on the edge. Always living on the edge. He was a Nazarite, which meant his hair was not to be cut. And uh, he couldn't uh, be a partaker of strong drink, etc. Some several qualifications of a Nazarite. And you're going to find where he had a wife that wanted to know the secret because the Philistines wanted to know the secret to his great strength. And finally he told her what it was. And one day when he was asleep with his head in her lap and she knew the truth, they came, they cut his hair and his strength was gone. The strength was not ever in his hair to begin with. The strength was in God if as long as he performed the quality, uh, qualification of a Nazarite. But when he done that, he disobeyed God and his strength went. And the Bible says Samson woke up and went out as he always did. And he says, I'll go as I have in times past, not knowing that the presence of God had departed from him. But now, some time goes by, his hair begins to grow back. And he prays to God one more time. And this time, what is he doing? He's praying for strength. He's praying for deliverance. He's praying for salvation. Notice the expression here when he says uh, in verse 18, I have waited for thy salvation, O Lord. Samson waits for that salvation and God gives it to him. 
God gives in the power. God gives in the strength. He takes those two pillars and he pushes them out from under the Philistines who were making sport of him and eating and drinking, being merry. And he slew more in his death than in his life. Then he speaks about Gad. He speaks about Asher, Naphtali. And then he comes to Joseph. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. Picture that in your mind. He's saying Joseph has lived and will live a fruitful life. The word Joseph means to add to, which means prosperity. It means fruitfulness. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. That's a picture of his brothers in the flesh. They envied him. They hated him. They despised him. In the beginning, they took his life, but they ended up selling him to the Ishmaelites who took him down to Egypt and sold him unto Potiphar. But notice... They were archers who shot their arrows at Joseph. But verse 24 says, But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Now, he's going to introduce several things about the Lord here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ for the first time. This is the first time this expression is used in the book of Genesis here. He says, But his bow abode in strength. Yes, they shot at him. He's going to shoot at them. What's going to be the difference? The Lord's going to take his mighty hands and the Lord's going to put his hand on Jacob's, on Joseph's hand, on the bow. He's going to take his hand and put it on Joseph's hand on the arrow and pull it back and he will never miss. So the most outstanding marksman when it comes to shooting a bow and arrow don't hit the target 100% of the time. They don't hit the bullseye 100% of the time. God does. And Joseph is going to emerge victorious. He's going to be delivered because he's got the mighty God of Jacob on his side. It says, made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. Study the hands of God. Brother Tim mentioned this a little bit in his message this morning. The hands of creation, for example, you take a look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. He says, she'll measure the waters in the hollow of his hand. This world is what this earth is. Am I right about being, is it two-thirds or either three-fourths water? Whichever it is, it's a lot of water. He said he measured waters in the hollow of his hand. He has met, met out heaven, measured, met out heaven. That means he's measured heaven by the span of his hand. That's his hand in creation. And then his hand in salvation. You go to John chapter 10, verses 35, 36. And the Lord Jesus Christ said, I know my sheep to hear my voice and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. And the man can pluck them out of my hand. And my father's gave to me is greater than all the man can pluck them out of my father's hand. I am the father of one. We're talking about the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. And in Providence, I love reading about the hand of God in the life of Nehemiah and also um, um, Ezra. When you read the book of Nehemiah and the book of Ezra, they're always referring to the hand of God, God's hand of Providence. And you'll find where Nehemiah described the hand of God and giving him leave of absence, where he can go back to Jerusalem from being a cupbearer there in Babylon. And he's going to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He refers to the hand of God as the good hand of God. The good hand of God. I have no doubt I have felt not just the hand of God in my life, I felt the good hand of God in my life. That hand of guidance, that hand of protection, that hand uh, where I feel secure in. A hand that I believe I am in, and no man can pluck me out of the hand of my heavenly Father because the hands of my Father are the mighty God of Jacob, you see. All right, he says, From hence is the shepherd and stone of Israel. Two more expressions here concerning the Lord Jesus Christ used for the first time. 
The word shepherd refers to Christ in many different ways. In John chapter 10, verse 11 and verse 14, the Lord Jesus Christ said, I am the good shepherd of the sheep. And the good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. In the book of Hebrews 13 and 20, it says, But the God of peace that brought again from the dead, that great shepherd of the, of the sheep, the Lord Jesus Christ, from the grave. He's the great shepherd in the resurrection. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, he's referred to as the chief shepherd. Good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd. Psalms 23, 1, The Lord is my shepherd, a personal shepherd. Aren't you glad that your personal shepherd is the good shepherd? Aren't you glad your personal shepherd is the great shepherd? Aren't you glad your personal shepherd is the chief shepherd? And aren't you glad that your personal shepherd, who's the good shepherd, the great shepherd, and the chief shepherd, is also going to be your returning shepherd? Matthew chapter 25 says, For the Lord himself shall come, uh, you know, here in this particular passage, and it says he shall be like a shepherd, which find his sheep from the ghost. Just as sheep have a shepherd, the sheep are in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they shall never perish, and nobody can ever pluck one of them out of his hand. Aren't you glad about that? And then he's also the stone of Israel. This is the first time the word stone is being used here in reference to a person. Oh, you read about a stone being used in various ways prior to this, but not as a person. Stone, just like you think of a stone, like a rock. Tim mentioned uh, this word rock's used. It's the same thing here in Deuteronomy 32, 4. He's, uh, he's the rock. His work is perfect. God of truth without iniquity. All right, he's the stone of Israel. The first time it's mentioned is right here. But you're going to find Psalms 118, verses 22 through 24, having reference to him. In verse 24, it says, This is the Lord's day. We should be, the, it's the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How many times do you hear that quoted? But how many times do you hear verses 22 and 23 quoted to go along with it? Because it's verses 22 and 23 that sets it up. In verse 22, Psalms 118, he says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. It is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord hath made. It has reference to the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, arrival, the day of the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't have an objection to saying this day right here, uh, December the 12th, 2021, is a day the Lord has made. I know he's the creator of all things, and I know without God this day wouldn't have, have happened, right? So I don't have a problem with that. This is the day the Lord hath made, and hey, we should rejoice in it. But that text there is having reference to the coming of Christ. And when the Lord came in his day, he came as a stone that you read about in Isaiah 28, 16 that Peter uh, quotes over here in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses uh, beginning about verse 4 and working his way through verse 9. He says, I will lay in Zion a stone, a precious stone, a sure foundation, elect, a chosen stone, but also a, a stone that was rejected and a stumbling stone. Christ was a stumbling stone to the Jewish people. They stumbled at his birth. They stumbled at his raising. They stumbled at his messages. They stumbled this man here who knew no letters, could speak with such power, such great authority. They stumbled when he performed his works and his miracles, etc., etc. They stumbled at this stumbling stone, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this stumbling stone to the Jews was a chosen stone, an elect stone, a precious stone, and a sure foundation laid in Zion by God himself. This is the day the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I'm glad he's not a stumbling stone to me. I rejoice and I read about his humble beginnings. I rejoice and I read about him born into a poor family like Mary and Joseph. Uh, uh, I can relate to something like that. If he'd been born in a palace in great wealth, I couldn't relate to that. But I can relate to the fact he was born in a poor person's house. 
Oh, we always had food on the table. Thank God for God's providential care. I know you've heard things like this before, but this is the gospel truth. <laughs> I, I was, uh, in my lifetime growing up, we always had good food on the table. I ate clothes to wear. But I'm telling you, we didn't have money to spare. <laughs> I'll tell you that now. And, uh, well, you know, we had to watch everything. And we were farmers and tenant farmers. And Dad was a sharecropper when I, was growing, when I grew up. But I thank God for that. I can relate to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ being born in a poor family. I can relate to the fact he was born to Mary and Joseph. He wasn't born in a palace and born in wealth. He was born wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. What about you? I, I, would, I would be tempted to run on this one for a while too, but I will not do it. So he's a fruitful bow. The hands of the mighty God of Jacob was with him. He was prosperous. He was fruitful. He's the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This is all pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even by the God of thy Father who shall help thee and by the Almighty. Listen to this language. Who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lieth under. Blessings of the breast and of the wound. The blessings of thy Father have prevailed above the blessings of thy progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph, on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brothers. Joseph was separate from his brother. In the land of Egypt, they had the best land in the land of Egypt called the land of Goshen. But while they dwelt in the land of Goshen, where did Joseph dwell? He dwelt in the palace. He was separate from his brother from that point of view. He dwelt in the palace, didn't he? Now he addresses his 12 sons, giving these prophetic messages. It all came to pass, just like Jacob said. He mentions Benjamin. And says very little about Benjamin. You thought he might have said more than this about Benjamin. But listen to what he says about him. He says, Benjamin shall ravine as a wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall devour the spoil. You mean little old Benjamin shall be like that? The twelfth one born, the one that uh, uh, Joseph gave five messes more than to his uh, food than his brother, gave five more change of raiment up to him than it is brother. Little old Benjamin? Yes, little old Benjamin. The son of his right hand. But you study out the life of Benjamin, you know exactly what Jacob was talking about. What tribe did Saul of Kish come from? He came from the tribe of Benjamin. He tried to kill David on several occasions. You should know the biblical story of all that. One time he, he wiped out an entire uh, company of priests because they had the gall to help David out a little bit instead of him. You know what tribe Saul of Tarsus was out of? Yeah, you guessed it. He also was of the tribe of Benjamin. And there was never a more persecutor of the church than Saul of Tarsus until he had his experience on the Damascus Road. When you study the life of Benjamin, you're going to find him and his offspring were great warriors. In the book of Judges, you're reading where there were 700 Benjamites that could sling a stone up at a hair's breadth and never miss. And you know what? They were left-handed. Jacob said, Benjamin, the son of my right hand. That's interesting to me son of my right hand, but they slung those stones left-handed, 700 of them, and they never missed. They were outstanding marksmen. But now I want to close this morning in the next five minutes with some things that Jake, Jacob then said about himself. It's going to be a little bit similar to what he said in Genesis chapter 48 when he spoke to Joseph and got Joseph to swear that when he died, he'd take him out of the land of Egypt and take him back to the land of Canaan to be buried there. Let's notice what he says here. 
All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is that their father spake unto them and blessed them. Everyone according to his blessing, he blessed them. And even though it says that here, do you know that the word bless is only used in these twelve, uh, when he speaks these twelve sons, he only uses the word bless when he talks about Joseph. He's the only one. And he charged him and said unto them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the caves in the field of Ephron the Hittite. He's going to give the history of that. It's going to be a place where Abraham purchased. Abraham was buried there. Sarah was buried there. Isaac was buried there. Rebekah was buried there. Leah was buried there. And Jacob's going to be buried there. I spoke to you, mentioned a couple of times about how important it is to have a last will and testament, but how much more important it is to have a last witness and testimony. And Jacob has a last witness and testimony here. Now, he got Joseph to swear he'd take him out of there, but now he gets all of his sons before him and tells all 12 of them, he charges all 12, when I die, you take me out of here. You're not to bury me here. You take me back. Notice what he says in verse 29. He charged me and said to them, I am to be gathered unto my people. Verse 33. And when Jacob made an end of commanding his sons, he gathered up his feet into the bed and yielded up the ghost and was gathered unto his people. That word gathered unto his people is first used when God tells Abraham, when he, his death is recorded in Genesis 25, and he tells Abraham, Thou shalt die, an old man, full of years, and shall die in peace. And he died at 175. So I know without a shadow of a doubt, when I get to be 175, I'll call myself an old man. That's the first time God ever called Abraham an old man. He was 175. He said, you shall be gathered unto your people. He said the same thing about Isaac. He said the same thing about Jacob here. There's going to be a gathering one day. When the Lord comes back, there's going to be a gathering. We use that expression all the time, don't we? Gathering. A father has a message for all his family. He tells one of the children, go gather all the family together. My wife tells me to take out the trash. She says, go gather all the trash. <laughs> I go to the bathrooms. I go to the den. I go to the under the sink. I go to the pantry. We got trash everywhere. <laughs> now, it's orderly. But anyway, I have to go to several locations to gather all the trash together. And then put it all in one place. What do we do? What do we do here this morning? We gathered together, didn't we? There's a song we sing. We gather together to sweet what? To ask the Lord's blessings. But see, when we gather together here, we're not always together. <laughs> when we gather together here, we're not all gathered together. There's people missing this morning who are not here. I wish they were. But they're not. But I'm telling you about a gathering, brother, where nobody's going to be missing. Nobody's going to be absent. We're going to be gathered together. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we shall be gathered together in him. A gathering unlike any other gathering that shall ever be. That's what Jacob has under consideration. Now I want to close with this, with this picture. I want you to get in your mind. You go back to Genesis chapter 32, you're going to find where... Jacob is fearing for his life. He's escaping from Esau. But he's going to a land where he's sent. He's, got, he's going to cross Jordan's River by himself. The only thing he has in his hand is a staff. That's all he's got. 
He's going to come back 10 years later. 20, excuse me, 20 years later. He's going to come back, but he's going to come back with more than he went across. He's going to come back with that staff, but he's going to come back with two wives, two concubines, and a whole host of people, 12 children and their offspring. But he's about to take another trip by himself. What's the last thing we're told about Jacob in the Bible? It's found over here in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 21. It said, when Joseph was a dying, he leaned upon his staff. He, when Joseph was a dying, he blessed the two sons of Joseph. And leaning upon his staff, he worshiped God. He's about ready to take another journey. His earthly journey is over. He's made his last journey. He's pronounced his last blessing. He's made his last request. He's going to take his last breath. He's going to take a journey with that staff one more time. But he won't be alone. He'll have God with him. I love the way this story ends. It doesn't end the life of Joseph. It ends the life of Jacob, though. And we'll look at what Joseph did at this Lord willing Wednesday night in chapter 50. But I love the way this chapter ends. I love the way Jacob's life ends. Jacob was a pilgrim and a stranger all the way along the journey. And he finally left this world on his last journey when he departed from this world. You know what the history of the body is when somebody breathes their last breath? You know what the history of the body is? The history of the body is it's taken out to the cemetery. That's the history of it. What's the history of the soul? The history of the soul is when the last breath is taken, it immediately departs from the body and winds up in the presence of the Lord instantaneously. That's the history I'm looking forward to. Thank you so much for your wonderful attention here this morning. Um, we'll select a hymn. What do you have, Brother Junior? Hymn number 66.